Thank you for staying with us. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman, and we are in Parashat Demor. We are on the top of page three, really around the middle of page three, if you're following along with the written notes. We are studying about the festivals of the Lord as outlined in Leviticus chapter 23. I call them the festivals of the Lord because that's exactly what the Torah describes them as. They are God's special days. And my challenge um, to those of you listening today, uh, the challenge that I presented to those who picked up part A, and I really do encourage you to go back and listen to part A of the podcast, but my challenge has been this. If you name the name of the Lord through Yeshua the Messiah, that is, if you are in genuine uh, relationship with God through Yeshua, and you know what, even if you're on a journey, even if you're pressing into God and you haven't made a decision yet, consider this challenge, okay? These are God's feasts, and if God is your God, if He is your Father, then you as His son, you as His daughter, these are yours as well. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. If you're Jewish, do not be fooled into thinking that these are festivals of the Jewish people. They are not festivals of the Jewish people. The Jewish people are caretakers of the festivals, but the ownership is God's. They belong to God. Consequently, if you are non-Jewish, and you also name the name of God as your Father, through, of course, Yeshua, His Son, then don't let anyone tell you otherwise. These are your festivals as well. They're not the feasts of the Jews. They belong to you as a non-Jew. And so I encourage you to walk into them and to embrace them, okay? Okay, below um, on the list that you're going to be uh, following along with in the written notes um, are brief themes and biblical and spiritual concepts of the seven Mikra Ekodesh, the seven festivals of the Lord, plus Shabbat, which the Torah has for us. So really, we've got seven festivals, but they start with the weekly festival, if you will, known as Shabbat or Sabbath. All right. So what I'll do first is talk about the Sabbath briefly, and then I'll go into the seven festivals. Um, the heading that I've given for this section is entitled Shabbat, Resting in Messiah, Resting from Work. Now, um, Shabbat, of course, is the Hebrew term for Sabbath. You know, in my dealings with the particular topic of Sabbath versus Sunday, which really is where many arguments um, are, are, are uh, centered from, especially within Jewish versus Christian camps. It's Sabbath versus Sunday. Which day is the day that God uh, commands us to work on? Which, or, I'm sorry, which is the, the day that God commands us to cease from work on? And does it matter if we recognize the seven-day Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath, or the first-day Sabbath, or, or, or you know, what, you know what, what's, the, uh, what's the verdict? Um, I've decidedly noticed that during the um, uh, arguments that are presented, conventional reasoning seldom contains scriptural legitimacy. What I mean by that is this. It is, again, unfortunate that the tradition that has been handed down in Christian camps is that Sunday has replaced Sabbath. But in the explanation of Sunday replacing Sabbath, very few times does the argument contain any scriptural uh, legitimacy. Where is the scriptural license for changing the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday? And when I say where is the license, I'm really opening up the um, uh, the debate or really opening up the parameters for someone to show me a verse anywhere in the Bible that contains um, the switch 
Whereas God commanded Israel to stop keeping the Sabbath day as Saturday and start keeping Sunday as Saturday? Or conversely, where does he command the um, Christian church to keep Sunday instead of Saturday? Traditional Christian reasoning as to why the days have been switched most often, just in my uh, experience, most often seems to point towards Christ having been raised from the dead on Sunday. At least that is the prevailing view that is put forward as the reason behind the switch. In other words, typically if I, Ariel, a Jew, ask a, um, an average non-Jewish person who does not embrace the Sabbath day on Saturday, if I ask them why was Sunday chosen for the quote-unquote new day of worship, well then the reason put forth is usually because Christ rose from the dead on that day. That's what I mean by that statement. That this, was, that, that, that this switch was no trivial event for the whole of Christianity is certain. Okay? This was no small switch. All you, had to need, all you need to do is pick up um, ancient Christian historical records and you'll see what I'm talking about. However, an event in the life of the Messiah, whether significant or not, is hardly reason enough to challenge clear scriptural commands. Okay, The Torah commands us explicitly, in no uncertain terms, here in Leviticus chapter 23, that the seventh day is the Sabbath day. Let me read it for you again. Verse 3, on six days work may be done, but on the seventh day, not a seventh day, on the seventh day, there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest, a sacred occasion. You shall do no work. It shall be a Sabbath of the Lord throughout your settlements. And again, for those who might be saying, well, what if the Hebrew doesn't say the Sabbath, the seventh day? What if the Hebrew says a seventh day? Well, the Hebrew says, Sheshet yamim ta'ase malacha uviyom hashvi'i. Ha-shvi-i, comprised of two words in the Hebrew, but in your script, in your text, it's going to show up as one word because Hebrew combines the definite article ha with the next word shvi-i. Shvi-i means seventh, and ha means the. Thus, the, ter the verse says six days um, work is to be done, but on the seventh is Sabbath of Sabbaths, or literally it says Sabbath of Sabbath, Shabbat Shabbaton, which um, is um, worded to be, or translated to be, a Sabbath of a complete rest. Mikra'i, Mikra Kodesh, Kol Malacha Lo Ta'asu Shabbat Hia La Adonai, Bekol Mosh Votechem. Okay, so it is the seventh day, that is the Sabbath day. Pseudo-biblical reasoning is often employed to support abandonment of Sabbath in favor of Sunday observance. Pseudo-biblical reasoning. Observe the most common verses that are used, okay? This is a listing of some of the verses that are put forth ostensibly as reasons as to why we should not be keeping the Sabbath on the seventh day, even though the pasuk we just read, the verse we just read, is explicitly commanding us to do so. Matthew 28, verses 1 and verse 6. Mark 16, verse 9, where Yeshua says he's Lord of the Sabbath. The Matthew 28 passage, by the way, is a, um, a prose, a narrative uh, where uh, Matthew records that um, 
uh, on the first day of the week after Jesus had, had risen. Mark 16, 9 uh, refers to Yeshua being Lord of the Sabbath. Luke 24, 1 through 6 is again a narrative uh, concerning his resurrection. And then John 20, verse 1 is also a narrative. This trip down Gospel Lane, which is why I chose the four Gospels, is quite simply presented as valid proof that Sunday should be honored over and above Sabbath. It really is presented that way. For, as the average Christian argues, is it not clear, they explain to me sometimes, is it not clear that Christ really did raise from death to life as seen in these verses? And couched in the language of a question, I'm forced to answer yes. Yeshua was raised from life to death. And, I'm sorry, from death to life. And it's recorded in the Gospels as being witnessed on the first day of the week. Yes, I agree that this event is central, not peripheral, central to basic Christian theology. That's not my argument, people. I'm not arguing the validity of Yeshua's resurrection. Of course he rose from the dead. And I affirm and embrace such a doctrinal truth. Why then should I reject the reasoning behind his resurrection as for the switching of the days? Simply because such hermeneutic reasoning ignores the fact that these pasukim are merely part of a greater narrative of the resurrection event and consequently carry no halakhic function whatsoever. In plain terms, this is prose. This is narrative. There's a big difference between what God is saying in Leviticus 23 verse 3 and what the writers are describing in the Synoptic Gospels. You get my point? There is no scriptural support for Sunday worship from such a narrative, let alone any evidence to support the absconding of Shabbat altogether. That's the challenge I want to present to you. Okay? If we want to understand what God is teaching us, we need to understand how he's teaching it to us. There are times when he gives us commandments, and there are times when the Bible describes an event. We need to know the difference between the two. Now, although I did not focus on the creation account and its impact on Sabbath pageantry, in truth, my personal primary conviction of the theology of Shabbat, if you were to ask me, Ariel, why do you hold to the Sabbath so fiercely? Besides it being just a commandment here in the Torah, um, its supposed abrogation, let's just uh, let's entertain the notion that Sabbath has been um, lifted from its position of seventh day and moved to the position of first day of the week, okay? If that were the case, then um, the creation of the world might have been described something like this, okay? You ready? Watch this. Quote, Along with the fact that it is a memorial of creation, the Sabbath day is also an identification of Hashem's authority. Only he could set a day apart as holy. Now read Genesis, okay? Read Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Only God could sanctify a day as an eternal memorial of his uniqueness, okay? Um, no other created being has this authority, and this includes man, this includes religious institutions. When we try or attempt to override this authority, we undermine the very the very character, the very identification, in fact, the very nature of our Almighty God when we try to upset the biblical balance that is presented for us 
in the pages of his word. When we mess with the signs, when we mess with the types and shadows, with that, we have no right to mess with. Okay? Um, again, in truth, my personal primary conviction of the theology of the Shabbat and its supposed abrogation would read something like the way I'm describing to you. God gives us the necessary information so that we can determine what days he wants us to meet with him at. Once we find ourselves playing God instead of following God, it is then that we are in serious trouble, people. We are, we are, we are sliding down a slippery slope when we can imagine that we are smarter than God and that we can uproot God's purposes and its plans. Now, while it is true that we, the church, we, the believers, have been given, as it were, the keys to the kingdom. We've been given the authority to make lasting decisions governing everyday communal matters. That is to say, we have been given the right to determine halacha. You can read Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20 to understand an often misunderstood application of heavenly authority. We have been given the right to create halakha within our groups. However, we have not been given the authority to switch God's Sabbath day nor abrogate it. We have no authority. There's no grounds for that. And shame on us when the Messiah comes back because I'm quite certain that he's going to have some correcting words to say to those leaders who decided that the Seventh-day Sabbath was not important enough a, cons a, 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 a convocation to be declared like God commanded us to declare it. As for personal observance, as far as the Sabbath is concerned, I tend to go out on a limb, so to say. Now let me explain. I believe that Sabbath observance can be a tricky subject, especially when viewing it through the lens of someone else. What I mean is this. The Sabbath is a corporate command. God commands us to cease from working on the seventh day and to enter into his rest. However, we've not been given the full scope of the details of what ceasing from work and sanctifying the Sabbath Entail. And so I personally believe that Torah observance, to include Sabbath, of course, is first understood and applied from the individual perspective, especially when the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is, has firmly revealed a certain aspect of it to you. And then we work from the individual toward the corporate. What I mean is this. As individuals, we embrace God's words and we embrace God's ways. And if you don't own it individually, how can you expect to own it corporately? We're not supposed to go blindly headlong with the group. We need to know what the group is doing and why they're doing it before we decide to join the group. We are, of course, joined to Israel. If you have not been um, informed of that, uh, of that truth, then welcome to Israel. Okay, You're part of Israel. Therefore, when you read Leviticus chapter 23, verse 3, and you see that God commands Israel to sanctify the Sabbath and to uh, uh, proclaim it as a, uh, a, a convocation throughout their generations, well, then you need to understand that Israel is you. You are Israel. But Israel is comprised of individuals. And therefore, God commands Israel, but God really is commanding each and every individual Israelite. But in our day and age, since we do not live all in the same community, perhaps the way that um, ancient Israel did. We're scattered across the face of the earth. Some live here, some live there. And because of that, some people are cut off from the community of a greater 
messianic expression of these verses. And so they find themselves isolated. What do they do? How do they keep the Sabbath? What are their responsibilities? That's where I'm going with this, this, um, uh, this conversation. How you keep Torah is going to necessarily differ somewhat than the way that I keep Torah. Do you understand? You're going to personalize certain verses in a specific way towards your need and towards your, um, uh, towards your opportunities. I'm going to personalize the Torah in other different ways. And so our Torah observance is going to be collectively seen as um, obedience, but individually it might look slightly personalized or different. Only after this personalization of the commandment, the mitzvah, can the corporate aspect be actualized as well. The Sabbath is but one command that is to be internalized using the faith of Messiah Yeshua. So it starts on the inside. You own the Sabbath. It's yours. Embrace it, people. It's yours. If you've named the name of Yeshua and He is your Lord, then these are your days. This, the Sabbath is yours. Don't let everyone tell you any differently. It's not for the Jews only. It's not. It's for you. It's for all of Israel. And if you name the name of Yeshua, then you're Israel. Okay? So the Sabbath is yours. Internalize it. Take it unto yourself. Ask yourself the question, how can I begin to walk into the Sabbath? If you're working on that day, I can tell you right now, I can just give you a suggestion. One of the first things you should do is stop working. Get with your employer. Explain to them that you want to keep this day as a day unto God. Tell them it's a religious day. See if they will, they will give you uh, an opportunity to switch uh, your your days off, okay? I can promise you there's going to be a fight. There usually is, and uh, it won't be an easy thing to do. But begin to embrace it in that in that practical aspect. And if you can't do that just yet, then begin to embrace it in other ways. If you have to work that day, then find other ways to sanctify the day unto God, okay? If you can't at least stop working just yet, if you if that's going to be a long drawn out battle, then find other ways that you can press in and sanctify the day. When you get home from work, turn off the TV, turn off the stereo, turn off the internet, and find ways to press into God's presence on that day. Seek God out, and He will meet you where you're at, and begin to change your situation so that you can begin to move from where you're at to where you are not. Progress, people. It's called progress, okay? That's what I mean by personalization of the Sabbath. I don't mean that everyone's um, declaring their own personal Sabbath and that everyone does what's right in his own eyes. It's not what I mean. I do intend to um, push the individual towards a community that is practicing likewise. In other words, eventually I recommend, in fact it's actually commanded, that you get yourself to a congregation on Sabbath, okay? And that means with like-minded Torah-embracing individuals. Alright, that's all I want to say on the Sabbath. If you want more, go to my commentary on the website. It's called Sabbath, and it's probably a very long read. I, I know it's at least 30 or 40 pages, okay? I apologize. Let's move on. The next festival on the list in Leviticus chapter 23 starts in verse um, 7. On the first day you shall... I'm sorry, it starts in verse 6. Uh, I'm sorry, let's try that again. It starts in verse 5. Um, in the first month of the 14th day of the month at twilight, there shall be a Passover offering unto the Lord. Um, Pesach la Adonai is what we're talking about. A Passover to the Lord, Pesach la Adonai. This next section is entitled Pesach, Passover, Redemption, Salvation, Deliverance, and Freedom. 
and that, that, that heading that you're seeing at the bottom of page 4, that is the themes associated uh, with Passover. Now, Shabbat notwithstanding, Passover really is the beginning of the biblical feast of Leviticus chapter 23. And the actual feast known as Pesach spans three separate yet inextricably linked feasts. So when we think of Pesach, we really need to remind ourselves that it's not just Passover on the 14th of Nisan. It's actually Pesach, which is observed on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. Hamatzah, which is unleavened bread, observed on the 15th day of Nisan. And then Yom, Rish, uh, Yom uh, uh, I'm sorry, Omer Reshit, or Bikurim, first roots, as it's sometimes called. And that's observed on the day after the Sabbath of Hamatzah. So we've got those three that are actually uh, stuck together. And if you want to get ultra-technical, then Shavuot, coming up soon, is also linked to Pesach. They're bookends, okay? Pesach on one end, Shavuot on the other end, with the two festivals um, of uh, Hamatzah and Omer Rishit captured uh, between the two bookends. I want to provide the readers with a concise look at Passover by supplying a direct quote from a book that I highly recommend reading. It's called The Seven Festivals of the Messiah by Edward Chumney, and it's available through Treasure House Publishing. But one may also read the book online at Chumney's website at uh, www.hebroots, that's H-E-B like boy, R-O-O-T-S, dot org. Click on the link in my commentary at the top of page 5. It'll take you straight there. And um, Mr. Chumney has been gracious in allowing anyone and everyone to read the book online if you'd like. In chapter 3, pages 23 through 25 of this book, he provides this vital background look at understanding the overall message of the Pesach and its relevance and fulfillment in Yeshua the Messiah. And that's why I'm going to lift this quote for you in my commentary. Here we go. Quote, God declared Passover to be a permanent celebration for all eternity. You can reference Exodus 12, verses 2, verses 6, as well as verses 13 through 14. Historically, Passover celebrates God's deliverance of the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt, where they were slaves to the Egyptians. Reference Exodus 2, 23 and 24, as well as Exodus 6, 5 through 8, and Exodus 13, 3 and verse 14. He goes on to say, The spiritual explication that God wants us to understand is this. Egypt is a type of the world and the world's system. Its ruler, Pharaoh, was a type of Hasetan, or a type of Satan. The bondage people are in when they live according to the ways of the world's system is sin. You can reference John 8.34. Historically, the children of Israel were delivered from the bondage in Egypt by putting the blood of a lamb upon the doorposts of their houses. And you can reference Exodus 12, verses 2, verse 6, and verse 13. Spiritually, this is a picture of the Messiah, Yeshua, and how those who believe in Him, that is in Yeshua, are delivered from the bondages of sin and the rule of Satan in their lives. Yeshua is the Lamb of God, reference John 1.29. Yeshua is also our Passover Lamb. He's our Pesach, um, reference 1 Corinthians 5.7. Now, those who follow Yeshua are the house of God, reference Hebrews 3.6, as well as 1 Peter 2.5. The doorposts in the story that uh, um, Chumney goes on to say, the doorposts are our hearts. It is only through trusting by faith in the shed blood of Yeshua, Jesus, our Passover, that we are free from the bondage of sin. Reference Galatians 4, verse 3 through 5, as well as verse 9, 
and Galatians 5 verses 1 and read 2 Peter verse 2 I'm sorry 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 19 Chumney goes on to conclude this is speaking of the redemption this is because the blood of Yeshua redeems us from sin and he uh, gives us these gives us these verse Leviticus 17:11 Ephesians 1:7 Colossians 1:14 1 Peter 1:18 and 19 1 John 1, 7, and then finally Revelation 1, verse 5. I'd like to add to that, it's not in my written commentary, but I just want to add, if you'll go back and read the Passover narrative of Exodus chapter 12, you'll find out that God told Israel to place the to take a lamb into their homes, keep it for four days, inspect it from the 10th through the 14th, and then on the 14th they're to slaughter it and smear the blood on the doorposts. We all know that part of the story. And then later on, God tells them that because this is Passover, that they are also for seven days to rid their homes of leaven. You remember the details? Now watch this. And we're going to talk about leavening in the next uh, uh, section where we talk about Chag uh, HaMatzah and unleavened bread. But what I want you to go back and notice in the feature of the narrative of Exodus chapter 12 is this. The people were instructed to place the blood on their doors before they were instructed to remove the leaven from their homes. Do you know what kind of a, of a, of a um, teaching lesson that provides for me personally? I'm not sure if everyone else catches this, and I'm not sure how it speaks to everyone else, but here's how it speaks to me. God is actually asking us to place our trust in the Lamb of God before we can actually get the sin out of our lives. In other words, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the verse tells me. While the Israelites and the Egyptians who entered into the homes that night, while they still yet had leaven in their homes, they placed the blood on the doorposts. And then God delivered them. And then afterwards, he explained to them that they were to remove the leaven from their homes. Now isn't that interesting, the order of the commandments? Place the blood on the doorposts and then lid ridge your home of leaven. I'm just going to turn there real quick to make sure. Um, here it is. It's Exodus chapter 12, and it says in verse 7, They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the two sides of the top of the doorframe at the entrance of the house in which they eat. That night they are to eat the meat roasted in the fire. They are to eat it with matzah and maror. Don't eat it raw or boiled, but roasted in the fire with its head, its lower legs, its parts of its legs and its inner organs. Verse 10, let nothing of it remain till morning. Any of it that does remain burn up completely. And then, if you drop down to verse 15, it says, for seven days you are to eat matzah. On the first day, remove the leaven from your houses. For whoever eats chametz, which is leavened bread, from the first to the seventh is to be cut off from Israel. Now, I know today that we actually begin removing the leaven from our homes even before Passover comes. But if you notice historically that first Pesach, Instructions are given to first, the, at least the order that the prose is 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 laid down, the, the order of the narrative. Put the blood on the doorposts. Oh, and then, by the way, clean the leaven out of your homes. So, something interesting to think about. Let's move on. This next section is entitled, Chag Hamatzah, Unleavened Bread, Sanctification. Which is what Hamatzah and removing, um, removing leaven from our lives represents, sanctification. Um, Kedusha. The festival known as Hamatzah follows immediately after Pesach. The 14th of the Jewish month of Nisan is Pesach. The 15th is Hamatzah. Now this time I'm calling them the Jewish month because they are national 
months that are recognized by the Jewish people as a nation uh, when compared against other nations of the earth back then that did not have, uh, or, I'm sorry, that had their own national calendars. Thus, I'm calling them the Jewish month here, okay? Not to be confused with my, my uh, previous um, teaching about how the festivals don't belong to Israel. As the Torah so clearly instructed the offspring of Abraham, uh, all bread eaten during this observance was to be matzah. And let's quote 1 Corinthians 5, 7-8. through 8. Quote, Get rid of the old chametz, or leaven, so that you can be a new batch of dough, because in reality you are unleavened bread. For our Pesach lamb, the Messiah, has been sacrificed. This is Paul speaking. So let us celebrate the Seder, not with leftover chametz, the chametz of wickedness and evil, but with the matzah of purity and truth. End quote. Now, in this verse, we learn that chametz, or leaven, was interpreted by um, Rav Shaul as a type of sin. Now, the leaven of sin, if you'll notice, like its culinary counterpart, has the capacity to work its way into the complete loaf of our lives. Oh, yeah. It, what it happens is, is as sin gets in, it expands and it rises. And so what happens is the whole loaf, as it were, our lives, is permeated with sin. We've got to stop sin in its tracks. This is why, with the guidance of the rock within us, we need to remove all of the leaven from ourselves. Now, I know it's not possible that we're going to get all the sin out. Will this result in a sinless life? Not yet. No. Yet, our efforts will surely be rewarded. We are commanded to put away sin. We are commanded to walk into holiness, even though it's a lifelong endeavor until Yeshua comes back. Um, the efforts that it takes, that we put into pushing off sin in our lives, are going to be rewarded in the form of a renewed and strengthened walk with our Lord. As we flee from sin and run into the arms of our Lord, we're not going to be sinless just yet until Yeshua comes back. We're still going to sin. But, you know what I call sanctification? This is going to, this is going to be a very simplified definition. Sanctification is really the idea that I sin less and less as time goes on, as I grow. In its simplistic form, that's really what sanctification is. It is a process whereby, as days go by, less and less sin plagues my life. Okay, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to fool myself and, and think or imagine that someday in this life that I'm going to be sinless. But what will end up happening is that if I don't die first, when Yeshua comes back, I will be changed, just like you. And in that transformation, I will put off sin once and for all, and I will be able to put on incorruptibility. Amen. In other words, as long as we have these earthen vessels, our desire should be to flee from sin until we finally reach that blessed time when our Lord Yeshua will return in power and glory to cleanse us completely. The next section is entitled Omer Reshit, First Sheaf. And um, the uh, first sheaf speaks of sanctification and deliverance, just like Hamatzah speaks of sanctification. Baruch A. Levine, in his commentary to Leviticus by the Jewish Publication Society, JPS, outlines the logistics of this part of chapter 23 for us. Quote, 
in this section two offerings taken from the new crop are prescribed omer and bikurim the first omer is the offering of a sheaf of new barley as originally intended the priest was to offer it on the morrow of the first sabbath subsequent to the seven-day festival new grain could not be eaten until this offering was made it constituted desacralization a right that gives god the first right i'm sorry the first of the new crop thus releasing the rest of it for ordinary human use levine goes on to say quote, beginning on the day of this offering a period of counting is initiated seven full sabbaths of weeks or sabbaths or weeks are counted off the fiftieth day the second offering of meal of new wheat baked into eleven loaves is offered in the sanctuary as bikurim first fruit so um, first we have the omer reshit which is a barley offering and then we have the concluding at the end of the fifty day we have the bikurim which is the first fruits of wheat um, Levine concludes it consists of grain furnished by the Israelite settlements that day speaking of Bikurim is a day of sacred assembly on which work is forbidden here it is not designated Chag or pilgrimage as it is in Deuteronomy 16 verse 10 a significant difference now as explained by Levine the Hebrew word for sheaf uh, is Omer now, the Omer count leads to the well-known event known as Shavuot, or Pentecost, as it is more widely recognized to most Christians. To wit, we, the students of the Bible today, we must understand from this passage that the days from Pesach to Hamatzah to Omer Reshit to Shavuot are inextricably linked, just like I explained earlier. A biblical principle worth remembering when it comes to this festival, however, is that the first always belongs to Hashem. This is what I mean by desacralization. The, f the first belongs to God. He owns it. We have no right to, um, to keep it or to, or to steal it from Him. And that's the significant truth taught both in biblical times and it has far-reaching truths down to this day. In fact, tradition, or as Tevia would say, tradition, Tradition blinds us to the unchanging truth of God's word, both in Christian camps as well as Judaic camps. Tradition can blind us. And when it's a truth of God's word, a truth that should not be compromised, then it's all the more damaging. And so we have got to understand this biblical principle when it comes to um, uh, exchanging truth for tradition. It's a very dangerous exchange. You know why? The world is watching us. The world is watching us. As believers, the world is watching. You may not know they're watching, but oh yes, they're watching. They are observing whether or not we will make a difference between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the profane, between life and death. They really are watching. And you know what? Hashem did not tell Am Yisrael to gather on Omer Reshit. You can read it in the passage. There's no convocation on that day. Even though I call these days seven, the, the, the seven festivals of the Lord, the Mikra E Kodesh, the holy convocations. This day does not have a, um, a holy convocation assigned to it. The day after the Sabbath, which according to the Sadducees is Sunday, right? Um, the morrow after the Sabbath is what the Hebrew, uh, or is what the English uh, shows up. Um, 
off the top of my head, I can't remember what the English or what the Hebrew is. I suppose I could look it up here. The morrow after the um, Sabbath, Michat uh, Shabbat, the morrow after the Sabbath, is what the Hebrew is. So um, God doesn't command Israel to gather on Omer Rishit. The, the, the priests are commanded to bring the sheaf and to wave it, of course. But according to the Sadducees, the morrow after the Sabbath is Sunday, every day. On the, or I'm sorry, every year on their calendar, uh, Omer Rishit fell on a Sunday. And so um, as I study what God instructs Israel to do, it's very clear that we can see a pattern emerging. Quite often, God will instruct Israel regarding things that she is to do in, in direct contradistinction to things that the surrounding pagan nation groups who had already rejected God and were ripe for his punishment, in contradistinction to the things that they were doing. Israel, see what they do? God would say, don't do that. And then conversely, Israel, God would say, Israel, see what they're not doing? Do those things. In other words, see how they're not worshiping me? Well, I want you to worship me. See how they name a lots of names of other gods? I want you not to do that. In my uh, opinion, in an estimation, um, one of the reasons, perhaps, that God did not give Israel instructions as to gathering on Sunday is in order to separate His truth from the error of paganism. Remember, the sun worship, the the existence of sun worship has existed. It's 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 been in the earth since the days of Babel. Okay, sun worship predates Am Yisrael in the um, in the narrative sense of how we're reading it here in Leviticus 23. God is speaking to Israel and declaring unto them his set-apart days. But sun worship has already been in existence, is my point. I believe that the people of the Tanakh set the biblical example of not to gather on that special Sunday during the Passover week for a true heavenly reason. Why have we failed to grasp this truth. It goes back to the whole whole argument again of Saturday versus Sunday. If the historic Christian church would be honest with themselves and explain to their followers as to why they really chose Sunday over Saturday, then most Christians of the 21st century would be shocked to find out the real reasons why the ancient fathers of the Christian church chose Sunday. And I can give you a hint. It was not because Jesus rose from the dead. That was not the original reason. You go look it up for yourself, okay? Surely Yeshua was raised from the death to life on that morning following the Sabbath. I'm not trying to negate that fact. Surely he is the first fruits from the dead. Absolutely, I affirm that fact. He is the first person to be raised unto a resurrection of incorruptible flesh. He's the first person to be raised from the dead, never to die again. Because after all, many people were raised from the dead. In fact, a few of them by Yeshua himself. But all of those people went on to die again. Not Yeshua. Now, although our flesh, you and I, the people listening to the podcast, our flesh still houses sin, Yeshua's flesh, by comparison, was sinless before his death, on the execution stake, that is, and his resurrection demonstrates for us genuine believers what a resurrected body will be raised like, will be made like. What will it be like? Raised to life everlasting, never to die again. Once we are quickened by Yeshua's second coming, when we are changed from corruptible into incorruptible, we don't have to fear death anymore. In fact, we don't have to fear death right now. So what if you die? What did Paul say? To live is Christ and to die is gain. So it's alright. Death, you've lost your sting. Why do we confuse why do we continue to confuse this wonderful truth about Yeshua's resurrection with our man-made traditions? 
we can affirm the truth of the resurrection of Yeshua without having to usurp God's authority or, or, or uproot God's commandments concerning Torah obedience and Sabbath observance. We can still affirm the truth that Yeshua is Lord and Master and that He is resurrected from the dead and that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. But we don't have to switch the days. Why do we have to mess with the days to, to get this truth out? Why can't we have both Saturday Sabbath and affirm that Yeshua has risen from the dead? I'm not sure exactly why we can't understand it that way. What the church has to prove by pushing or, or ostensibly supporting some switch of the days is beyond me. It's, just, it's a lesson in nonsense, okay? Isn't it time that we start demonstrating God's holiness? Not our own, but God's holiness by the very days that we gather on? I think it is. I'm not going to say any more on the matter. The first always belongs to Hashem. Why are we sharing it with paganism? This next section is entitled Shavuot, Pentecost, the giving of the Torah, the giving of the Ruach HaKodesh, first fruits and ecclesiology. And with that, I'm going to draw this um, section of the uh, podcast to a close. We'll uh, clip this off and call it Part B. It's about 40 minutes. We'll call this Part B, and when we return, we're in the middle of page 7. We will start talking about Shavuot, Pentecost. Stay tuned.